Welcome to a new episode of JSLX Conversations, a podcast produced by the Journal of Social Linguistics. These open access conversations about timely issues in the field of social linguistics usually revolve around a recently published book. Today, Professor Melissa Moyer from the Universitat Autónoma de Barcelona will meet Professor Suresh Kanagaraja from Penn State University. They will discuss the social linguistic issues raised by his latest book entitled Language Incompetence, Learning to Communicate Through Cancer, Disability and Anomalous Embodiment. I'd like to thank the Journal of Sociolinguistics book review editor, Maria Rosa Garrido, for organizing this podcast with Suresh Kanagaraja today on his recent book, Language Incompetence, Learning to Communicate Through Cancer, Disability, and Anomalous Embodiment. Welcome, Suresh. I'd like to start by introducing you. Suresh Kanagaraja is Edwin Earl Sparks Professor in the Department of Applied Linguistics and English at Pennsylvania State University. Among Suresh Kanagaraja's accomplishments are more than 15 monographs, nine special issues in journals, including the Journal of Sociolinguistics, over 90 articles in peer-reviewed journals, and prizes for a number of his publications. His contributions to sociolinguistics in the field of applied linguistics involve a perspective from the global South from which he has contributed to our current understanding of translingual language practices and how global Englishes uh, pose a challenge to normative and nationalistic uh, based views. He's also uh, carried out research in writing and literacy which have also been an angle from which he's questioned language and educational policies. The occasion of this podcast is to discuss with Suresh Kanagaraja the book about his recent experience with cancer titled Language Incompetence, Learning to Communicate Through Cancer, Disability and Anomalous Embodiment, which is published by Routledge, Taylor, and Francis Group in, 19, uh, in 2022. From an autoethnographic uh, perspective, Suresh discusses and challenges the ideological templates that have been used to talk about illness and disability. The effects of categorizing and categorization of the disabled are challenged and resisted. But in order to gain a deeper insight, Suresh takes up the taboo issues concerning the meanings and communication of illness, pain, and vulnerability, topics which up till now are rarely discussed in the field of sociolinguistics. So Suresh, if you're ready, we can get started. And thank you for being here. Um, I'd like to um, start off by asking um, you to talk about uh, what you mean by language incompetence, which is the title of your book, and whose language incompetence do you refer to? And related to this, how do you see the role of language 
in the social exclusion of persons with disability. Yeah, thank you, Melissa, for uh, introducing me and also uh, introducing the book. Uh, and I thank the Journal of Sociolinguistics uh, for uh, reviewing uh, this publication. So uh, your first question really goes to the heart of uh, what I'm trying to do in this book. Uh, uh, as a disability studies scholar Dan Goodley once mentioned, disability studies starts with disability, but doesn't end with it. And what I mean is, uh, I'm actually going on to question competence itself. Uh, although I start from uh, language incompetence. Uh, and I'm kind of using language incompetence uh, kind of tongue in cheek <laughs> because you know pe what people have defined as incompetence uh, is dependent on um, the dominant definitions of uh, what speech means and uh, uh, who uh, is capable of speaking. So anyway, the book starts with my cancer diagnosis and treatment, which made it difficult for me to write like the way I used to. You mentioned all the publications, uh, but suddenly after my treatment and hospitalization, uh, I couldn't um, conduct research, teach, write the way I was used to. Uh, uh, so in a sense, that was a kind of an incompetence. Uh, and then I go on to review scholars who are uh, deaf or blind, uh, who communicate through braille or sign language, who have also been treated as incompetent because they don't have words. Uh, they don't use uh, uh, grammatical or linguistic constructs uh, in their communication. Uh, but in both uh, my experience and the experience of uh, disabled scholars, what we found was uh, the fact that uh, we didn't uh, communicate in the normative ways using grammatical English or using speech didn't mean that we couldn't uh, communicate. We actually were very creative in finding new resources, uh, tools, uh, reconfiguring our environment, engaging with others and relevant social networks. So we were competent but that involved a different definition of language competence. It involved accommodating social networks, um, material objects uh, as part of our communication. So it's in that sense that uh, although I start with language incompetence, I actually broaden the conversation to competence itself. Uh, so from that point of view, I uh, then go on to talk about how a lot of others are considered incompetent like um, minoritized uh, communities, like the African-American community or immigrant communities who speak English here and they are treated as uh, deficient because of their accent or style differences. Uh, so I kind of extend uh, the conversation beyond disability to just uh, difference, uh, how people think of anybody who is different as incompetent. And then I broaden it even further to all of us. So to say it's not only just disabled people, it's not only minoritized people, all of us use uh, resources that are material, tools, objects, uh, social networks uh, in embodied communication. The problem is the way uh, we have defined uh, language competence, uh, starting from the kind of a structuralist and Chomskyan tradition where we think of internalized grammatical rules. 
so it's the operation of the mind in speaking. It's the use of words in speaking that uh, we uh, prioritized. So basically, eventually, I kind of broadened the conversation to how all of us uh, could be treated as incompetent if you don't, uh, if you rely on words alone or the mind alone, because competence does involve a lot of other things beyond our mind, meaning the body, and also words, meaning multimodal resources and spatial repertoires. So it's a kind of a complicated answer because I'm playing with the notion of language incompetence in order to question competence itself. So that's very interesting um, because in a way you're calling for a new understanding of the way we understand competence and, and how meaning is communicated. So if we could kind of pinpoint some of the contributions that your personal experience and um, from the perspective of disability, what would you say, how would you say that our understanding of competence needs to be understood based on what you've learned? Yeah, yeah. So. Uh, couple of things that I learned. One is that uh, communication is embodied. And here again, disability scholars say, uh, uh, for disabled people, you can't ignore the body because the body is going through a lot of pain or the body is non-normative. It's not, doesn't work like uh, how bodies work for other people. So they've asked, how can any theory leave out the body? <laughs> so that I came to a new realization when my body was impaired. And I saw that without, uh, you know, working with my body, not always in a way that um, pulled me down, sometimes it enabled me. Uh, so for example, I give an example of uh, doing kind of a corpus linguistics for the first time from my hospital bed, because before I had never had a patient, had the patience to really do uh, coding of texts and uh, things like that, which required a lot of patience and focus. I was more outdoors as an ethnographer, you know, recording things, talking to people, which is all fun. Uh, so, but my body in the hospital, I'm kind of uh, limited to the bed and I have sutures all over my body, uh, enabled me to do a different kind of uh, study. So that's an example of embodiment. You know, the body was uh, shaping my thinking and communication. Uh, and then the second thing I realized is the value of distributed practice. And what I mean by that is uh, what people call a methodological individualism. You know, we have always had uh, a practice in our field of looking at individuals as responsible for meaning making. You know, I have to internalize the grammar uh, and be able to encode meanings. And you, the listeners, have to have this, share the same grammatical resources in order to understand me. Uh, but we never thought that meaning actually is generated between uh, uh, each of us. That is, uh, we have to work together to generate meanings. Uh, and it, uh, it doesn't rely on one person, either the listener or the reader uh, or the speaker alone. It emerges. Um, a lot of disability studies scholars would call it a case of becoming. You know, the meaning is not ready-made and waiting in me, in my mind, to be transferred on to you. So I, uh, I learned the value of uh, distributed practice uh, that uh, uh, communication involves working uh, with uh, others, 
But to include the first point I made, uh, it also includes working with multiple uh, semiotic resources, not just words, but tools, gestures, uh, face, facial expressions, all of them uh, work together. So uh, I think, uh, so we, um, we have to move towards uh, a competence that includes uh, all those uh, uh, factors in. Okay, thank you. I think that makes some very interesting points for the field. The, the other question I wanted to ask you about was why do you think sociolinguistics as a field has paid so little attention to the theme of disability? And what would you say are the key questions the field needs to ask or to address with regard to this topic? Yeah, so I, I um, uh, from the beginning as a graduate student, um, uh, uh, learned a lot from sociolinguistics in the way it broadened communication uh, to society, you know, moving away from a cognitive kind of orientation and cognitive uh, grammatical competence uh, with the work of uh, Labov and Himes, um, uh, the, how they broadened the orientation to language uh, as socially situated. But uh, one thing that happened is, uh, despite this diversification, uh, we didn't really question some of the underlying assumptions uh, in our field, and uh, I'm referring to assumptions that come from uh, European Enlightenment, you know, from 16th century onwards, uh, which a lot of people would consider the foundation of modern education, you know, with science and empiricism and objectivity. Uh, so uh, the three uh, foundational assumptions that I've uh, kind of alluded to them already, uh, but I can um, uh, label them as one is cognitivism, uh, because even when uh, Himes and Labov brought the social factors in and the variation and diversity in, uh, to some extent, they also theorized this as partly internalized. You know, people not only have the grammatical competence, but it, their grammar is also attached to social and cultural information, and that's part of our uh, cognitive makeup. Uh, so uh, does the body communicate? would be one uh, question outside cognitivism. Uh, secondly, uh, the, there is a kind of um, uh, logocentricism, which we haven't questioned. That is language as primary, speech as primary. And that's been always with us, uh, you know, from the beginning of speech as primary. Uh, and um, we haven't really given enough attention to uh, other communicative resources, you know, tools, gestures, body, um, different types of media. You know, although they're coming in, they are sometimes still treated as uh, secondary, you know, performance, you know, of how speech is now uh, deployed in different media rather than having their own, almost like the medium is the message kind of approach right. where these media also communicate meanings. And the third foundational assumption is um, humanism. That is, it's people are agentive, uh, they are creative, and the environment is something that's waiting to be shaped by us and our speech. Uh, so there are the challenges, do objects, are, are objects agentive? Uh, are, is the environment space agentive? So, uh, so I would consider these three foundational assumptions uh, to varying degrees, uh, as still shaping sociolinguistics. So cognitivism, logocentricism, and humanism. 
And as you can see, disability studies and also other related fields like um, decolonization, uh, new materialism, uh, they've started asking the question, uh, is it only the mind that is agentive? What about the body? Uh, as the, dis the disability scholars would say, you know, you can't really ignore the body. Uh, secondly, um, uh, is it only words that communicate, but what about other embodied resources? And then finally, what I mentioned as the distributed practice, is it individuals who are, to, uh, who are responsible or a collaboration of how meanings evolve um, uh, through social interaction? Somebody nicely put the last point um, somewhere else I found, they said, competence is not in the individual, it's in the network. How all these things work together, you know, people and resources. So anyway, uh, it's uh, uh, these changes are beginning to happen because we have started talking about embodied sociolinguistics. Uh, you know, we uh, have come across the word uh, also in the journal of journal of sociolinguistics. So um, uh, I think that's one of the directions where I think uh, the field uh, is moving to, and those are some of the questions here to ask. To what extent should our field uh, be grounded on logocentricism, cognitivism, and humanism? You know, what about so many other um, resources um, uh, and factors that contribute to communication? Yes, because this brings me the this idea of embodiment. I, I I completely agree from my own personal experience, but the, this idea of embodied impairment. Um, that you discuss in the book, I find very interesting because typically in sociolinguistics, we study the body separate from the objects, which you call the prosthetics, which are the aids that uh, people with disability use to bridge the gap between their body and the environment. And um, I found this idea particularly interested in connection to the way we look at identity, because typically we look at embodied, just the, 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 the identity expressed by the body, but we don't see the body as being a part of the object or the prosthetics. And I, I wondered if you could elaborate on this a little bit. Yeah, that, that's a, a tough question in the sense uh, how to explain uh, that, uh, uh, now, I put it this way, it's not only our body, but there are other bodies, <laughs> like tools and resources that are part of our makeup. So one way um, uh, I would, uh, maybe a simple example I can give is when I've started publishing from Sri Lanka, you know, in um, after my uh, doctorate, actually, it was, I did my PhD in Austin, went back to teach for five years in Sri Lanka. So I knew how publishing works. I knew English language. I was kind of mentored into uh, genres of publications and writing, but I couldn't really publish the way a lot of journals in the in the US were expecting because I didn't have the prosthetics. I didn't have the resources. So for example, uh, at that time in Sri Lanka, we largely used uh, typewriters with those old ribbons, you know, that we use. And some yes. of them, sometimes they are worn out and then we still have to use them. Uh, and, uh, and then our libraries didn't have the latest publications. You know, uh, it would take a lot of time for them to receive uh, some of these uh, publications. And a lot of times 
they didn't have the range of journals that were available in the United States because of the um, expenses. You know, it's very expensive to get all of them. So here I was uh, submitting manuscripts <laughs> to journals, uh, but they come to the they reach the United States in typewritten uh, manuscripts. Yeah. yeah, and a lot of time there were one or two times the editors sent back my manuscript and say said this will be difficult for our reviewers to read it. You know, why don't you get it laser printed and send it back? I really didn't have laser printers at that time. And then all the, the opening of my article would not be situated in current knowledge. And they would simply assume uh, this is a very novice scholar who doesn't know the field. So uh, the example is how my identity got presented to them as somebody who is a novice scholar, somebody who is not very professional, who is unable to get his uh, paper uh, uh, printed out well, or, uh, or uh, you know, produced uh, in a more uh, uh, impressive and uh, at least readable, intelligible way. So here, what I think is my, uh, uh, the resources I had, the books, the printing facilities, the library, they presented my identity in a particular way as a novice scholar. Um, and so that's just a, a, a quick example of how these are part of our makeup in the sense, I had the knowledge, so to speak, I had the training, but that wasn't enough. I still came off as uh, somebody not very professional, uh, somebody who was very young in the field. So, uh, uh, but, but the, the question is also relevant to group identity and how we uh, construct uh, positions, footing, uh, in groups, because that has been better studied. I'm thinking about Goffman's term, uh, ecological huddle. Uh, that is, you know, when we sit together in a particular way, uh, how we are positioned uh, in terms of our bodies, uh, in terms of the chairs and the desk or the board, uh, there develops a kind of a group uh, uh, ethic. Uh, he actually calls it group ethic. You know, we develop a sense of uh, he also uses the word group solidarity. We feel like we are all in this together. This is a shared activity and we need to work together. So that's what I found in some of the chapters I present in my book about international science scholars. You know, they all come from different languages and different uh, countries. But when once they get into this ecological huddle, a particular uh, way their lab group uh, meetings are uh, shaped, you know, their ch chairs are, positioned in a particular way, uh, and they sit uh, in relation to each other in a particular way, they develop a group ethic. Uh, so this is something that is being theorized by a geographer of all people. Uh, his name is Ash Amin. He's a, a geography in Cambridge University. Uh, the title of the book is Politics of the Stranger. And he, he makes an interesting argument. What he says is, uh, we always think about um, collaboration and uh, cosmopolitan, cosmopolitanism, interculturality, based on what dispositions should people bring in order to engage with others, you know, like love and patience and humility, et cetera. He reverses the argument and says, as an urban geographer, what I'm trying to do is construct environments where people have to engage with each other. You know, they, won't, they won't be alone or doing things in an isolated way. So, uh, because what he says is this, uh, the activities people do, uh, the way, where they are doing it, the type of resources, the space, how the space is organized, 
encourages them to talk to each other and work with each other. So he kind of flips the argument and says, it's not just, it's not ethics and dispositions that come first, and then you engage with other people in with a particular group identity, but it's actually the things in the environment that motivate you to talk to each other and work with each other. So that's another example of how uh, he actually says in a lot of places that identities and uh, relationships are not based about just uh, dispositions alone or qualities or characteristics of people alone, but the whole environment. So would you say that that approach of working together as a network, as a group of people who we construct uh, we construct our meanings, we construct what we have to say. Would you say this is connected to the issue of pain and vulnerability, which are two topics that you develop in your book? Um, and, and how does, what does cancer or being disabled contribute to the field exactly? How does pain come into language how does it come in to the way we communicate and to the way we relate to others? But especially, I think it would be interesting to see how you view it in connection to language. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think um, uh, we have um, been influenced by uh, uh, orientation to communication as transparent in the sense if you only shared the grammar and shared um, uh, the uh, the lexicon, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, then um, you know we can understand each other. And uh, if the um, uh, uh, meaning is not transparent, there's something wrong with you or me, right? In the sense you haven't internalized the grammar, or somebody is not, uh, you know, uh, uh, drawing from their uh, knowledge of language uh, in order to make sense of it. So there's a kind of a, what I would say a kind of a, that with that also a kind of a coherence to communication and a linearity to communication, you know. And, and I'm thinking about this good old image. I think that people say it comes from Sajua, where there's a a, a, a speaker who uh, uh, encodes <laughs> meanings exactly into a text, and the text communicates to the listener you know, without even direct interaction between the lead, reader and the listener. I think it's called the conduit model, right? About yeah. meaning, you know, you, you send the message through a, a message and it's heard and understood, right? Exactly, exactly. So I think pain and disability, uh, what it taught to me is there are ruptures in communication. You know, it's not smooth. It's not harmonious. Uh, it's not uh, linear. Uh, it's, it's not transparent. Because, you know, uh, with pain and uh, suffering or vulnerability, um, there are a lot of things that go wrong. There are a lot of things that uh, don't come off the way you intend. You know, I'm thinking also of so many disabled scholars uh, because of uh, using sign language or Braille. You know, um, they're not sure. Actually, this was brought to me by a, a, a deaf colleague of mine. Uh, he said, you know, we were both presenting one time and um, there was a sign language interpreter. And I said uh, to my colleague, you know, there were a lot of things that you said uh, that I couldn't, you know, um, I wasn't sure whether the sign language interpreter was saying it right. You know, I was kind of confused uh, because I, I couldn't follow the sign language interpreter's um, uh, translations well. So he said, Suresh, do you know this is 100% of my life. I depend on others 
to translate me. I depend on you to make sense of me. And you are asking for a coherence and a transparency and certainty of meaning that I never have. So it brought home to me how even in that context, you know, communicating, uh, co-presenting with the deaf scholar, I was uh, relying on certainty. You know, I want to make sure that you said this. Oh, I want to make sure that this is exactly what you wanted uh, us to understand in the communication. So this is about bringing uh, into uh, interactions rupture, I would say, or, you know, disturbances. Um, but, you know, it's not totally disabling, you know, in the sense of uh, it affects communication. But it's about, um, first of all, realizing that uh, meaning is co-constructed. Uh, meaning is a case of becoming, you know, it's not always ready-made out there. It's something we do and we do with other people. We do uh, meanings uh, with a lot of different resources, you know, with the gestures. Uh, and um, uh, I think my colleague would have uh, wanted me to look at everything in that context, the PowerPoint, um, uh, the text we have in front of us, rather than looking at only the words of the sign language interpreter. So, uh, so I uh, realized that in interactions, uh, I need to accommodate vulnerability. And vulnerability is a bigger word than just uh, disability or pain and suffering. Because what I think is that um, in uh, cases where people uh, in multilingual interactions or intercultural interactions, there is already vulnerability because they are bringing uh, uh, two different uh, or influences from two different languages or three different languages into that interaction. Even in English, although you know, people would think of it as one language, you know, look at here, I'm sure all three of us have, uh, you know, all two of us and <laughs> uh, Maria Rosa, who is uh, convening all this as the guest editor, <laughs> well, we all have different um, accents, uh, different styles, sometimes even different grammars. So that is vulnerability for me. They, uh, and by vulnerability, I mean, um, there is, um, uh, you can't, there's no certainty that we are all saying the same way. Uh, we have to be ready for gaps in communication. There are somebody uses a different style, different grammar. So, but then let me push it one more, one step further. It's not only about the disabled people. It's not only about multilingual people. It's about all of us. Because you know, a lot of people would say um, even native speakers of a language uh, cannot be certain that they are all speaking the same way. You know, there are dialects, there are regions, there is gender, uh, there is sexuality. All of these identities bring uh, difference uh, into communication, and they pose vulnerability for me. Uh, I, I think the pushback against the diversity is partly because. Uh, the uh, dominant communities want certainty. You need to behave like me or you need to talk like me. And I can't deal with uh, people who act, behave or talk differently. Uh, so I, I, I think vulnerability is there in any interaction that involves diversity because we are bringing different language resources, identities, cultures, values into the interaction. Uh, the problem is to expect certainty, control, mastery, coherence. Like, uh, but if you are ready for vulnerability, you know this is a very vulnerable uh, context. I think it'll open us up to in, uh, to engage with other people, to listen more patiently, uh, to be more humble, to be more 
to express more solidarity, you know, I need to work with you rather than expect uh, you to speak like me. So I, I think it's that from that point of view that I think of vulnerability as enabling and generating. It makes us all <laughs> come out of our comfort zones and say uh, any interaction involves difference and I need to engage with other people in order to make meaning. And I, I had one, I believe, last question that I wanted to ask you about is that you discussed the idea of how um, new knowledge is generated from the perspective of persons who've undergone cancer. Um, what do you mean by this new knowledge and how is it generated? How is it communicated? What is it that we learn? Yeah, so once again, I think uh, as in the first question that you asked, I was saying, you know, I used the word um, language incompetence, tongue in cheek, because it's about competence itself. So here, uh, I would say the new also has to be put in quotation marks <laughs> because um, it, it, uh, these are things that are always part of life. They are not new, but it's just that our way of making knowledge in linguistics or sociolinguistics hasn't really addressed them. So, uh, so I would just uh, qualify by saying this is not new in the sense that uh, something nobody knew about or nobody practiced. We have been practicing these things all the time in communication, but we just, we just didn't make a theory out of it. And what I mean by this is in my experience uh, as you know, uh, after being diagnosed with cancer and going through uh, surgery and um, being hospitalized for many months, um, but what I realized is, um, uh, as I you know, mentioned through my narrative in the beginning, um, communicating in these conditions is not about um, uh, uh, my mind alone, or it's not just about me alone. It's, it's about how I work with other people in order to communicate. So what I mean by that is, uh, at the time, I also uh, collaborated or got help from graduate students, colleagues, uh, to prepare teaching materials, uh, to write articles. And I realized, you know, I can't do a lot of things by myself, but I have to do it in collaboration with others. And the second point I realized was um, a lot of tools, resources, the environment shapes my communication. So I wasn't in my office as I always do when I work. I was in a, in a cancer ward. But even that, I learned to use resourcefully. You know, there was internet in the hospital. There are times uh, when I was uh, uh, let to allowed to get up and walk, and encouraged to walk and sit up. So uh, I, I try to identify the times I can work, spaces I can work, and uh, kind of reorganize my practice of communication. You know, uh, now writing means something slightly different. So uh, but the new knowledge there is communication is not just, just about me or my agency and my creativity or my knowledge or even better word, my ability. So you know, ability is a big word for disability studies because everything is premised in uh, human communication and also a lot of other human activities on what are you able to do? What are you able to do? And um, it doesn't uh, bring into consideration, we are not able to do anything alone. <laughs> you know, because it's a myth that we are kind of uh, autonomous, we are individual, 
And uh, uh, if you only had the resources, knowledge, uh, and ability, we'll be able to get everything done. So I realized that's a myth, you know, uh, that uh, we have to collaborate with others. And th that's something that disability scholars have also written a lot about. So somebody who is uh, blind uh, has to be led by other people to certain places. And here's a nice example of prosthetics where the blind people say, my walking stick becomes me because it's an extension of me. You know, it, the, the stick leads me. Uh, I sense the world through the stick. It's almost like others sense the world through their fingers or hands. Uh, so uh, that's an example uh, of how um, there was a kind of a new knowledge and yet it's not new because all of us uh, have had to work with others, with diverse other resources to get anything accomplished. But so a lot of people in um, ideology studies would call it an ideological misrecognition. We just didn't see, you know, we were made to look at only my activity, my words, my mind, uh, what I am able to do. But uh, what, the, what new things I realized was it's not just about me, but how this knowledge evolved or came about, I think there's a broader principle. It's about how always the periphery is critical of the center or the margins upset, unsettle the core. And what I mean by this is it's the disabled people who have been pushed to the margins of human communication, who have been treated as deficient, who are unable, uh, who are now asking this question and, ask, and asking, is the dominant assumption of uh, autonomy, human ability correct? Or is it very reductive? So that's what I experienced briefly when I had cancer in the sense that I was pushed to the margin, pushed to the periphery of uh, being unable to work, sick, being in the hospital, away from the university and the office. And then that generated some thinking about how am I working now? And why did I assume all the time that's all about me and all about my mind and the uh, competence I bring with me? So. So that was a, a good experience in uh, uh, revealing certain new things about communication. And the more I read disability scholars, I see more and more they are asking questions, people who are autistic, uh, people who are paraplegic, people who are blind, who are, who, people who are deaf, who are saying, we communicate very creatively, uh, but it first of all involves you to be ready to work with us. And secondly, expand your orientation to communication as beyond just words. Look at my gestures, look at the signs, look at the objects. So that's what I call new, but as you can see, it's not new because you know this is part of communication all the time. So, well, Suresh, hopefully with these ideas in your book, uh, we'll start writing more and thinking about and incorporating them in the research that's carried out. So thank you very much for this very helpful conversation. I hope uh, the listeners will enjoy it as much as I did. <laughs>